Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Be seated. One of the areas that the scribes and the Pharisees were always seeking to accuse Jesus of was that in his teachings and in his actions, he was breaking the Mosaic law. Their rationale was this. If they could ever catch him breaking the, the law of Moses for any reason whatsoever, then this would be a reason to accuse him of being a false prophet. And in that sense... All right, they're right that time. If he ever did teach anything contrary to the law of Moses, he wouldn't be a true prophet of God. But the thing here is, Jesus never taught anything contrary to the law of Moses. As we shall see, Jesus had many confrontations with the Pharisees and the scribes. And the problem that Jesus had primarily with them was that he knew... They had a darkened heart. He, being God, had the capacity to look into men's hearts and see the darkness. Uh, he could see uh, their wicked behavior. And, and uh, that was done in the guise of religion. He understood they were whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside. They prayed on the corners. They uh, supposedly taught the law of God. Uh, <clears throat> They gave this pretense of righteousness, but Jesus knew better. He knew their heart. He knew that was not the real uh, case within. And as we're going to see, he will conclude uh, here. It says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't make it into the kingdom of heaven. We'll deal with that in a moment. Of course, Jesus, when they accuse him of breaking uh, the Mosaic law, he normally turns it upon them, as we're going to see in Matthew chapter 15 when we get there, uh, when, just very briefly, they're going to accuse him. Why doesn't he teach his uh, disciples to observe the, uh, the custom of the elders by washing their hands before food? And it was just a technicality. It was just an external religious service. But he's going to say, well, why do you set aside the law of God for the sake of your man-made traditions. And so, the problem with Pharisees was that they had this external code, and that's all it was, externalism. It was missing the real essence of the law, as Jesus will later say to them, love, mercy, truth. They didn't exemplify. But then we're going to see not only that, that the Pharisees and the scribes 
Uh, it was pure externalism. Now, unfortunately today, nearly 2,000 years later, there are a significant number of Christians, sincere Christians, who have an inadequate understanding of Jesus' attitude towards the law of God. They think somehow that God's law is for a past age, uh, mainly the Old Testament, and that with the, uh, the onset of the New Testament, some kind of new ethic has begun that is different from the Old Testament ethic, meaning code of uh, morality. I've mentioned that group. Uh, dispensationalists argue that way. But that is an incorrect understanding of the scriptures. But it's not just the dispensationalists that <clears throat> have a problem here. There are many, if I may say, in the Reformed community that have an inadequate understanding, even though they are sincere in their belief. And that is that somehow the New Testament has set aside the, the moral code, particularly the case laws of the Old Testament, that they are no longer valid for us today. And... Uh, you may have heard uh, these people are going to say that those laws that were given were meant for the nation of Israel. And when the nation of Israel expired as a nation, those laws were set aside. Now, later on in the message, we're going to read from our confession of faith. The threefold use of the law of God is very instructive. You may have heard some people say that we are to exercise in the New, Te New Testament. Love and not law. Have you ever ran across people that have said that? Uh, we're to, to love and it's not of law. But the point here is where in the word of God does it say there's a problem with love and law? Where is law contrary to love? You're not going to find it in the law of God. Uh, <clears throat> this, is whole, this idea that love and law or somehow opposites, is a very unbiblical attitude, and it has brought great damage to the church. It really, the visible church, it really has. Love is not anti-law. Turn with me to, to Galatians chapter 5, and look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's about as clear-cut as it gets, doesn't it? The very essence of the law of God, or love, is the law of God. The law of God is all about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus later will say in Matthew, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is how we show love. So the attitude that somehow there's a difference between love and law is not a biblical point of view. And then what does it do? It sets up this attitude. If the law is not our standard for what, how love manifests itself, then what becomes the standard? Myself. 
my own thinking, your own thinking, what you want, what you desire. But that's not what the Scripture says. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, as I mentioned, there are those that may not go to that extreme uh, as the dispensationalists and some others who make that contrast between love and law. But as I said, there are some who don't want to see all of the law of God, particularly those case laws enacted today. And what we're seeing in our day, in the 20th century, is that attitude, especially in places of the Reformed Church, where they don't think those laws are valid today, we're reaping what we have sown with that attitude. And I could probably take a poll of all those that have that idea and say, do you like where we are today in America? You didn't think that we ought to have some of these laws uh, still in vogue? Do you like where America is going? Where do you think it will end up? The... In my, in my opinion, probably one of the greatest contributions to the church in the 20th century was done by my former professor at seminary by the name of Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson uh, wrote a book that caused no minor stir in uh, the Reform world, Presbyterian circles. Actually, was uh, accepted in non-Presbyterian circles better than it was in Presbyterian circles, to our utter astonishment. But he wrote a book titled Theonomy in Christian Ethics. And I and others think that really that is one of the masterpiece works of Puritan theology, Puritan theology, which is the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Bonson never advocated anything novel, He would simply, in his defense, he says, I'm just saying what the Westminster Confession has always said. It's what our pure English Puritans always said, what our American Puritans always said. There's nothing novel in what I've said. I'm not presenting any new theology. In fact, our denomination, the uh, RPCUS, we are... Known one of our distinctives is that we are a theonomic denomination. We expect all of our officers, uh, ruling and teaching elders and deacons, to subscribe to the fundamental elements of what we know as theonomy. In fact, we're probably the only denomination in the world that can be classified as a thorough theonomic denomination. Of course, over the years, we've taken some criticism for that. But we have always advocated a search for truth, always advocate evangelism. There's nothing uh, contrary between advocating theonomy and evangelism. They go hand in hand. Bonson always said that America's hope doesn't lie with our legislative process. He says it lies with the gospel taking hold of the American people and a revival of immense proportions. That's where it begins. 
Bonson argued that, that cultures will either advocate what he called theonomy or autonomy. Now, the term theonomy, he may have uh, coined that phrase in his book, but really all that is is it's a combination of two Greek words. Theos, meaning God, and nomos is the Greek word for law. So theonomy is just a version of God's law. That's what that is. And he says either in your personal life, in your church life, and in your culture, it will always be theonomy or autonomy. Now what is autonomy? You break down the word autonomy as two words. Autos means self. And nomos, still meaning law. So autonomous would be a self-law. A law unto yourself. So, he said, it will always be an issue of either theonomy, God's law, or man's law. That's the way it always be. And I believe, and I've always said to people, What's wrong with this? You want to show me where there's an error in this thinking? And so, for example, what was one of the problems that we see in the Scripture uh, with the death of what some have called one of the greatest generations in the history of the Bible, meaning the generation of Joshua, those that went in and took the land of Canaan? You remember how the book of Judges says, what transpired? It says, it says, there arose a generation that knew not the Lord. They did not know his law. And then what does it say about them? They did what was right in their own eyes, which is autonomy, right? Self-law. They did whatever they felt was right. And obviously, God has a differing opinion then doesn't believe your own right. You don't have a right to your own system of ethics. But you are obligated to my system of ethics. And then he brought judgment upon them. And there you had the judges arise that would deliver people out and people would fall back in the sands and have to be delivered by another judge. But the ultimate problem was that they were autonomous. They did what was right in their own eyes and they had forsaken the law of God. And as a result, uh, the nation reaped what it sowed. And America is reaping what it's sowing. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And look at verses 4 through 8. But you who hold fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See? I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there 
that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today. Now, need I say to you that what the scripture is saying here and Moses is conveying to us is that the greatest law code that has ever been given to mankind or whatever mankind have is the Mosaic law. He says, that is your wisdom. That is your understanding. The Mosaic law. He says, what nation has such great statutes as this nation, Israel? And then he says, surely these other nations will look at you and say, what nation has as great and wise and understanding people as this nation who has that law code? In the 19th century, there was one that visited America, and his idea was, why was America great? He crossed over all across America, and he came to the conclusion, and he made this statement, America is great because America is good. And he says, when America ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. I was the 19th century. America, when those who sailed from England to America, one of the most uh, great things you can do is read some of the sermons that were read by the, or, yeah, preached by the preachers to those that were getting ready to sail to the New World. Uh, they were coming, and the whole idea was to come to a new world, to worship according to the word of God, and to set up a city on a hill that would be a light to the world. And the texts that they read were very, if I may say, post-millennial, of the progress and the victory of the gospel. And surely even... Uh, so when the pilgrims came over, they came with a distinct desire to set up a Christian community. When the Puritans came over and settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony area, they came with a distinct mindset of the law of God to be implemented in all society. If there were ever theonomists of that time, it was the Puritans who settled the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And the law of God was seen as the standard. And for the longest time in America, the law of God was seen as the norm. The Ten Commandments was seen as the summary of God's moral law that obviously must govern all of society. And so there was a general consensus of what is good. Turn, turn with me while we're talking about that. Turn with me to Romans 13. And in Romans 13, it says, beginning in verse 1, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. 
For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it's necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but for conscience' sake. For because of this, you pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to what is due, then tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Here's another expression of Galatians 5. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's all summed up, saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law, thereby establishing what I said earlier. Well, here we set out the pattern of civil government, and the pattern of civil government is... They are actually said to be a minister of God. That word for minister is the word diakonos, which is the same Greek word that we use for officers of the church who have the priority of uh, dealing with uh, taking care of the needs, the physical needs of the people of God. So the word diakonos simply means a servant. The civil authority is said to be a servant of God for good. And it's to be a terror to the wicked, and it, it protects the good citizens. Well, the question arises, how do you know what is good, and how do you know what is evil? How does the civil authority know what is a good law, and what is a bad law? So as to not be a terror to the good guys, but be a terror to the bad guys. So you've got to have a standard. Well, what do you think the standard is? Is there any coincidence then down here in verses 7 and following? What is, li- what is partially listed here? The Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are the standard. So the civil authorities are obligated under God to keep the law of God, to enforce only the law of God, I'd wish that had been the case. You know, there's not going to be any help in future American elections until the American people come to understand they have a moral obligation to follow God's law, and until the American until that sinks into the American people that you have no right, no right to elect any man to any public office who isn't a Christian man, and who pledges himself to hold to the law of God. It's the way it used to be in America, but it's not anymore. And that's why we're experiencing uh, the terrible downward spiral that we are experiencing in America. The law of God is no longer the moral code of our civil authorities, as it once was. And so, we have reaped what we have sown. Now, for the moment, we need to understand that God's law, let's understand what the nature of God's law is. The nature of God's law is simply a reflection of who He is. That's who God is. 
And that's why God takes such offense to those who break his law, because he's the lawgiver. And you impugn the law, you have impugned the character of the lawgiver, right? And so God takes offense at people who are lawbreakers. And therefore, God has given his law as the standard for holiness. That's how we define love. It's how we define goodness. And it is how we define holiness. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And no, I have not forgotten our text in uh, Matthew 5, 17. I'm just setting you, uh, setting you up. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? First Peter 1, 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You're to be holy because I'm holy. And my law is a reflection of my holiness. So when you keep my law, then you are, you are being holy as I am holy. Someone may say, well, that's the, that's the New Testament. Well, guess what? Turn with me to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, and let's look at verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God, am holy. Does that sound familiar to what Peter said? All Peter was doing was simply bringing the Mosaic law into the New Testament period saying, of course it's still the standard of holiness. Look at Leviticus chapter 20. Look at verses 1 through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he is giving some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard the man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch, so as to not put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch. As for the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. There's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, who commits adultery with his friend's wife. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Do you get the idea that God says, my, my law is a reflection of who I am. And when you violate that law in one shape or form, and you teach others to violate that law, he says, I will visit them in my wrath. You know what <clears throat> Moloch worship was in Israel? Well, let me just fill you in what Moloch worship was. You can go on the Internet and you can see the pictures. Moloch was a big, giant bull. It had an open belly with a furnace. Okay? And part of Moloch worship, your children ought to be glad your parents, your parents, well, would have been faithful Israelites, not Moloch worshipers. What parents would do, they would bring their children as a sacrifice to Moloch and throw that child into that burning furnace in the belly of Moloch as a sacrifice. That was Moloch worship. And it had invaded, it had come into Israel. And God said, look, if you don't deal with the man who is a, a Moloch worshiper, I will deal with the man in his family. But you know what? We may not be throwing our children into the fiery furnace today, but you know where we are practicing a form of Moloch worship? When parents abort their children, they are practicing a type of Moloch worship because you want to have a certain blessing to have uh, to give to Moloch so Moloch will bless you. There are parents who believe, well, we just can't have another child. One of the most hideous things that I read years ago, and this is for real, there was a family of that had two children, and the wife was expecting the third child. And the husband and the wife decided to abort that child, and here's the rationale they gave. Our dining room table only sits four people, not five. I'm not joking. That was the excuse they gave to murder their offspring. Sorted, isn't it? We just can't afford to have another child. And it's too inconvenient to go out and buy, I guess, to buy, uh, to move over a chair. I guess you don't want the chairs to be out of alignment. And then it says here, notice, not only those who practice any kind of form of idolatry like that, he says about the spiritists and the mediums, they are to be put to death. Why are the spiritists and the mediums put to death? Because you can be driving down the road and you say, stop in at Sister Anne's and get your palm read and your fortune read. So what, what, what is, quote, I'm just making up that name, okay? <laughs> what is this person saying they're doing? 
They're telling the future, right? Well, who can only tell the future? God can only be the one to tell the future. Only God knows the future because he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So any kind of fortune telling is implicated into something that is contrary to the law of God and something that people do that they may not think is such a horrendous thing, but they some don't go out in the day without first looking at their what? Their horoscope, right? Well, what is a horoscope? But another way of trying to tell the future independent of God, and it is the practice of uh, spiritism, mediums, anything like this, God says is wicked, should never be tolerated in a godly society. And so we see here, now some people may say, is that harsh, dealing with people this way? But need I remind people, some have said, well, that was the Old Testament. Some criticized Greg Bonson when he talked about that the abiding validity of the law of God and these case laws. Um, and he aptly responded to one, and one of the men that, was a, a severe critic of his, was the head of the Presbyterian Journal at the time, and saying, well, what kind of society, a monstrous society would we have if we implemented that kind of thing? And Bonson wrote back, I mean, some of his letters that he wrote that I had got to have possession of, and the reason I got possession of them, because my wife operated the printing press at Reform Seminary, and uh, printed a lot of the stuff that Bonson would bring in. And Bonson replied with a 40-page letter to this man. <laughs> the letter was so good, I've kept it in my files for 40 years because it's a masterpiece. The letter is a masterpiece. And he said in this letter, he says, Look, you may cast dispersion against the law of God and say that it was only relevant, but let me tell you something. Who gave that law in the Old Testament? God did, right? So don't say the law was wicked because God gave that law. Now, you may argue that it's no longer valid in the New Testament, which he says I'll disagree with you on. But don't assault the law because you are assaulting the lawgiver who in the Old Testament sanctioned it. And so... This serves as an understanding for us to take a look at what Jesus meant then in Matthew 5. So look again, turn to Matthew 5. That was sort of an introduction, but it's not, the rest of the sermon's not going to be <laughs> to that extent. But I gave that so you would understand where Jesus is coming from. So when Jesus said in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What Jesus is saying here is, and the Greek language brings this up, he says, don't even begin to think that anything I've said to you is contrary to the law of God. 
I didn't come to abolish, to nullify the law. I came to fulfill it. Now, some people have said, well, what Jesus meant there, and I'm talking about those in the Reformed community that don't believe that those laws are still valid for us. They said, well, Jesus did fulfill the law. He fulfilled the law when he died on the cross to pay the price for our transgression of the law. And when he fulfilled the law for us, then that is the meaning there. Well, Bonson very aptly in his book says, now, that doesn't make any sense. If you interpret the word fulfill to mean do away with, because if that's what you mean by the word fulfill, here's, here's how the text would read. I did not come to abolish, but to abolish. Now, is that what that means? Well, no. That word fulfill can also mean confirm. To confirm. In other words, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to affirm it in every detail. And that is its true interpretation because he says in verse 18, I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one small letter or stroke of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. You know, that little stroke in Hebrew is that is little, it's called a yod. It's a breathing mark in Hebrew. And he says, and it's part of the Hebrew Bible. And he says, not even that will pass away. He says before, he says, my law will not pass away. God's law will not pass away. And he says in verse 19, if it wasn't clear what Jesus meant, that he didn't come to do away with the Mosaic law, he came to affirm it. Because he says in verse 19, whoever then annuls one of these least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches him shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, you're standing with the Lord and he has been pleased with you. Now, we're not saved by law keeping, mind you. That's what we're not talking about. We're saved by the merits of Jesus Christ only. But once you've been brought to saving faith, the standard, the pattern of holiness becomes the law of God. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is that to set aside any of these laws that Moses gave, if you set those aside, you're going to be viewed as being least in the kingdom of heaven. You won't be viewed as great, but least in the kingdom of heaven. And so what we see here is some of these people that want to tell us that Jesus' law-keeping uh, in our place is what this means and that we don't implement those Mosaic laws, for example, those case laws that I just read some of those to you in Leviticus 20. There are some people that said, we shouldn't put adulterers to death. We shouldn't put spiritists and mediums to death. We shouldn't put homosexuals and sodomites to death. That's cruel. Well, who says it's cruel? God didn't say it was cruel. 
God says that's what you're supposed to do. If you love me, you keep my, my law. If you love me, you'll be holy as I am holy. I'm the one who told you to do this. You, you allow a society like that to develop, then it will be a monstrous society. Remember the instance when the angels came to Abraham, told him <clears throat> uh, to get his nephew Lot out of uh, Sodom because God was ready to destroy uh, the city because of the great wickedness there. And uh, when the angels arrived in the city, when they, they couldn't find enough, even ten righteous people in the city, remember when the angels arrived, and they came to uh, Lot's door, he let them in, and all the men, the homosexuals, came up to Lot's door, and they wanted, well, the, the angel says, we'll just spend the night in the public square. They go, oh, no, don't do that. Please, don't do that. Now, the angels knew very well what Sodom was like, but Lot says, no, don't do that. And then when the angels, these men, of course, the public didn't know they were angels. They came, a mob came to the door, demanded that they give the angels, these men, over. And Lot, well, what Lot said was pretty bad. He said, I'll give you my daughters, but I'm not going to turn these men over to you. I mean, what was Lot thinking when he, when he said that as well? But then when they were trying to force it away, that's when the angels blinded the men and got Lot and his family out of the city. God knows that that lifestyle leads to a monstrous society. And one day, they may put me in jail for having publicly said that in a sermon. But the word of God is true. And will prevail. But Jesus said, I have come not to abolish that law, but to confirm it in every way. And therefore, it's quite explicit there in verse 19 who are the law keepers and who the law breakers are. And one thing we've got to understand is that the New Covenant, remember I said there are some that think the New Covenant has set aside the law of God. Well, it hasn't set aside the law of God. The newness of the New Covenant is the fact there is freedom and power available to the people of God that there was not available to in the Old Covenant period. Freedom and power. But the law still remains intact. And to prove that to you, that, that the law and the new covenant are not at odds against one another, turn with me to Jeremiah 31. And look at verses 31 through 33. Now this is Jeremiah prophesying the, the coming of the new covenant. Verse 31. The whole days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, now what law is he referring to? The Mosaic law, of course. The moral law of God. Look over at Ezekiel 36. Verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, the law is perfect. Take a look at Psalm 9. Or Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. There is freedom in the law of God, not bondage. Take a look at Psalm 119. And look at verse 45. Psalm 119, verse 45. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. You know, the Apostle John, when he wrote first the epistle of 1 John, he says the commandments of God are not burdensome to the people of God. They're not burdensome to God's people. Turn over to the book of James. Look at James chapter 1. James 1, verses 25 to verse 27. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undeviled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is the law of liberty. You see, the law of God is a pattern of holiness to the people of God, is what it is. Once the Lord has saved you, you see, there, I'm going to be talking about it in a moment from our confession of faith. One of the functions of the law of God, according to Galatians, is it's a tutor to lead us to Christ. Because it's a tutor because the law condemns us because none of us can keep that law perfectly. And yet that is what God expects of us. Perfect obedience. Like I've said, you can't score a 99 on God's law and make it into the kingdom of heaven. You can't foul up one time. James 2.10 says, He that keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point has become guilty of all of them. 
So the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. But once we've been led to Christ, once we've been redeemed by the merits of Christ only, the law takes on a different function. It becomes the standard of holiness. Turn over to to Romans 8. Look at verses 7 and 8. Well, actually, I need to back up to verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it is not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You see how close that passage is to the Ezekiel Ezekiel 1 I read to you in Ezekiel 36? When God gives you a new heart, what does he say he's going to do? He will cause that person to walk in his statutes. The Christian loves the law of God. The Christian is subject to the law of God, and the Spirit of God is a spirit that conforms us to the law of God because it is the standard of holiness. And therefore we see that the law of God, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, abolish it. I came to to fulfill it, to, to confirm it. And anybody teaches Otherwise, they're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, follow with me. Turn in the back of your hymn books to the Confession of Faith, uh, the Conf- chapter 19. And I just want to read the first four sections. All right. You with me in the back of your hymn book? Chapter 19 of the Law of God, beginning at section 1. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to, pers- to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables. The first four commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six are duty to man. Besides this law, commonly called moral, so now that was the first type of law, the moral law. Now there's another one, he says. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all of which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Let's stop right there. Those laws called ceremonial, like all the sacrifices, all the, uh, the tabernacle, the temple sacrifices, they were all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. But once Jesus has come, as Hebrews says, once the substance comes, you do away with the shadows, right? Because that's what Hebrews says. 
The ceremonial law was done away with. But Jesus is not talking about the ceremonial law in Matthew 5. He's talking about the moral law of God. So you've got the moral law of God, you've got the ceremonial law of God. Now there's a, a third type. That's section 4. To them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now farther than the general equity thereof may require. Now, some have looked at that and said, well, right there, those, you know, <clears throat> that, those laws given to a body politic, those are the judicial laws. Another name of that for judicial law is case laws. And some of the judicial laws that I, I've, I've already mentioned to you, we read several of them in Leviticus 20 about spiritists, mediums, those that sacrifice to Moloch and the like. Those are some case laws. Now, what he said was, the way those laws, what the confession says here, the way those laws were given, in the exact way they were given, may not be carried out. <clears throat> For example, there is a case law that says if you entertain on the top of your roof, you are to put a parapet or a railing around the top of your roof, lest somebody fall off your roof and get hurt or killed. Now, how many of you entertain on the top of your roof today? If you're at the beach, you might. You might have a flat house, and then the law might apply exactly that way. But most of us don't entertain. But, so, but what the, did they say? That law doesn't obligate anybody further than the general equity may require. Well, general equity is what? The principle of the law. What do you think was the principle of putting a railing up on your top of your roof to protect life. What? The Sixth Commandment. Thou shalt not murder. You see, all the judicial laws are simply specific applications of the Ten Commandments. That's what the judicial laws or case laws are. Specific applications. And sometimes those laws may apply exactly the way they are, were given, but then the principle still abides. So if you've got a house and you've got your back deck and you don't have a railing around your deck, shame on you. Because somebody could just fall off the back of your deck. See, the general principle of the law is protect. If you're doing yard work and you dug a big hole, now it will carry over there. The Bible says it's, it's the case law of the open pit. It says if you dig a pit, you need to cover it so that someone doesn't fall in it. If you don't cover your pit and someone falls in it, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life, if they get killed, you're going to be liable for murder, first degree murder. Changes things, doesn't it? Now, is that not just we are to protect law, I mean life? Why should those laws no longer be operative today? No reason why they shouldn't. They were meant to protect life. 
Are we, are we to be uh, less gracious in the New Testament than we are in the Old? I don't think so. The New Testament is more gracious. And so those laws ought to be carried over. And mind you, this is why, this is why in our denomination, the reason why we call ourselves a theonomic denomination and we believe we are that because the confession of faith is a theonomic document. And you can prove that by reading all the other writings of the men that attended the Westminster Assembly, and they were quite clear in their other writings that they believed that those Mosaic laws were still in force today. And let me just end with this. Turn to Isaiah 2. And look at verses 1 through 4. Here's what it's going to be like one day. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now will come about in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of the Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, reigning at the right hand of the Father, subduing the nations. And that house of the Lord, the chief of the mountains, Zion, is a term that the Bible uses in many places for the church. The day is coming when the nations will stream to the visible church of the Lord Jesus to be taught what? The law of God. And they will love the law so much that the nations will no longer fight amongst themselves. Incredible, isn't it? There will come a time when they will love their neighbor as themselves, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. You can read some of the, um, the great sermons of the past. And when I was preparing my book, Preaching in the Victory of the Gospel, and I was dealing with some sermons of some of, of the preachers, and I was dealing with, like, Samuel Davies in uh, Virginia. I ran across some of his sermons that just literally blew me away. I said, if, <laughs> it was a magnificent sermon. It, it ought to be, and I can understand why they published these sermons in those days. It deserved to be a book. And he talked about the law of God the law of nations, that the civil duty of American politics and for all magistrates is to uphold the law of God as found in the Ten Commandments. And he wasn't the only preacher who said that. It was commonplace for 200 years for many preachers to preach those kinds of sermons. 
But the voice has gone silent. That kind of preaching you don't hear much anymore. You really don't. And when the church fails to preach it, what do you expect of the people? They, they will then not follow the law of God, but follow their own desires. And then they will do what is right in their own eyes. Jesus was serious. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he says to those Pharisees, he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, you will never make it into the kingdom of heaven. Because they didn't care about people at all. They did not have love, justice, and mercy at all. It was all external. So you've got to love the law of God in your heart. But you see, if you're a Christian, you do love the law of God. And if you profess to know Christ and you have no concern for the law of God, then your profession is a sham. Because if the Spirit... See, you can't be a Christian without the Spirit, right? That's what Romans 8 says. He that has the Spirit has life, belongs to Jesus. And everybody who belongs to the Spirit and who belongs to Jesus... They love what? The law of God. They want to walk pleasing. And so whatever God says, they will do. We long for the day when there will be a Josiah in politics who, in 2 Kings 23, he gathered the nation before him and then he took a covenant And he swore allegiance to the law of God before the people. And the people would say, Amen, and they swore obedience to the same law as the king. Could you imagine an inaugural address someday where a president just pulls out the Bible says, I know I may not be a preacher, but I am a but I am a head of a people. I am a type of king. And let me tell you what my administration is going to be like. And then he just expounds the law of God. Could you imagine that? I don't know if America is going to be around or not. But that's what Josiah was like. And God says, you had a heart tender towards me like no other king. Because you love my law. Let us pray.